This is the Managing Smartly podcast with Kestrel Blackmore, show number two. You're listening to the Managing Smartly podcast, helping software developers become managers. If you're a software developer looking for advice on how to be a team leader or manager, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned as we interview developers who have already made the leap and look to gain insight on the mistakes and successes they have made along the way. Now here's your host. Welcome to the Managing Smartly podcast, guys. You're listening to show number two. This is the first show where I interview someone, so hold on to your seats. Today I have a real treat for you as I interview Johanna Rothman. Her book, Behind Closed Doors, Secrets of Great Management, was really helpful for myself when I first moved into management. So grab yourself a pen and notepad because Johanna drops a huge amount of gold in this interview. Also, make sure you listen to the end as I'm going to give you some information on the contest I'm running to coincide with the launch of the podcast. Johanna Rothman is known as the Pragmatic Manager. She provides frank advice for your tough problems. She helps leaders and teams see problems and resolve risks in their product development. She helps these people work better. Johanna is the author of close to a dozen books and writes a blog on her website, jrothman.com. Welcome to the show, Johanna. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Excellent. It's great to have you on the show. One of Johanna's books that I mentioned just before, Behind Closed Doors, was pivotal uh, when I first made the transition from software development into management. So it's a a great privilege of of mine to have her on the show today. So just to get a bit of context around, I guess, sort of who you are, Johanna, what is it that you do nowadays? So I'm a consultant now. I help. I either coach, I consult, I train, I do assessments. I'm a consultant, right? So when people think that things are not quite working, that's when they call me, and I go in and help in however I can. So uh, that's in sort of obviously software development management stuff, or is, is do you still do coding stuff? Or I no, I I do no professional coding. I have to admit that every every so often I. I write code for my own pleasure. I have been known to pair with people on their stuff. And that's where I get to say, okay, you can tell me what to do. I'll be the driver. You can be the navigator. And then we'll change, and I'll ask you stupid questions. But I don't do that very much. I am in firmly in management. I still love coding, but it's not what I do professionally. For sure. Yeah. So you've, you've had a, an incredibly long career in software development, I think looking at LinkedIn, dating back from the late, 70s. What what originally got you into software development? So I was in college and my father had suggested I take a programming class because I was was a sophomore. I had no idea what I wanted to do, right? It was one of those things. And he said, I think you would really like programming. So I took my first introduction to computer science and I was totally hooked. (laughs) And I, I graduated with a degree in computer science and I I, my first job was as a software developer, and it was so much fun. I could not believe that people paid me to do this. And so that was for a, for a few years you continued doing software development, did you? Oh, yeah. I was a software developer for nine years, and then I was a software tester, and then I became – I had done some project management as a developer, and I did some more project management as a tester. And then it became really clear that the company I was in – could not manage its beta process at all. And it made me nuts because I was in in the testing group. So I said, 
I'm just going to manage that. I didn't ask for permission. I told my boss, I'm managing this now. If you don't like that, tell me. He said, oh, no, no, go right ahead. I hate management. So I started managing that, and then I became a program manager where you have several teams in a program. So I was a software program manager and then a core team program manager, and then I ended up running a business unit at that company. So I I just kept doing more management stuff because I was really good at it. So it was a case of you sort of just put up your hand and you just sort of transitioned to it? Is that is that what happened? Yeah. I mean, I was still writing some code, right? So when I was a tester, I only wrote code because I was a developer by training. Why would I actually mm. do any manual testing? And the kinds of stuff that I was testing was an operating system or networks or devices. I mean, it wasn't stuff that you could easily test from a window or from a GUI. So I only wrote code. So I wrote code the entire time. And then when I was a project manager, we didn't have, you know, I, I say I'm a project manager from the, the Neanderthal era. We did not have tools like Microsoft Project. So I had learned about PERT estimation, where you have a three-point estimate, which is possible, likely, and then pessimistic. And that's how I manage projects. So I said, you know, what what interim deliverables do we want? So I would write code to remind people of their deliverables. I automated all my stuff because when you're a software program manager and you have 25 teams, as much as you might want to go around to each of those 25 teams, you cannot go around to them every single week. I mean, sure. you just don't have the time, and if they're not co-located, you are not able to do so. But I was able to have phone calls, and I could remind people of their deliverables, and I could do all kinds of stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I wrote code. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a whole heap of fun. <laughs> it's a <laughs> lot of people trying to organize for sure. And so was that probably one of the toughest aspects of management? Or like, so what did you find the hardest thing from going from a developer to sort of management? Because a lot of people see there being a big difference, and most developers are not necessarily heaps keen on management. What was the biggest challenge for you? So I did not get into software because I was a people person. I got into <laughs> software. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I got into software because I really love solving problems with code, and it was very clear to me very early on that management, project management, program management is all about the people. And so I really had trouble. Because <laughs> that's not why you got into software development. It's not why I got into software. And I really like dealing with people, but it's not, you know, I'm not a warm, fuzzy kind of person. I really, I'm a hard-boiled egg. And I really, I really work to be the kind of person that you would want to spend time with. Because if I am the kind of person that you want to spend time with, you will tell me what's going on for you as a developer in my department or as a tester in my department, as a support person. You'll tell me if you have trouble on the program or the project. And if if I am not approachable, you won't tell me, right? So I have had to develop that side of my personality. My husband, I've been married for over 30 years, and my husband said, uh, Congratulations. Thank you. My husband says that he is the one who has smoothed off my hard edges. And I, I fully give him credit because I suspect I could have, but it was, it was easier with feedback. Yeah, it's, it's so true, though, isn't it? I mean, a lot of management is around soft skills, isn't it, kind of? And that's 
typically probably an area where programmers aren't necessarily renowned for. So I don't know. I suspect that you at least codified a, a bunch of your thinking about feedback from behind closed doors, right? Mm-hmm. But I had never been taught to give feedback. I did know that if I was not judgmental and didn't label people, I got better results. I knew that if I tried to solve problems with them, I got better results. So, but it took me a long time to figure out how how to really give feedback in a way that made sense for a human, right? An adult human. So I couldn't say, I mean, I could say, good job, right? But that's not specific, and it's more parental. In fact, instead of... Very generic. Yeah, it's very generic. It's not specific at all. And instead, if I said, I really like what you did because of this, now people could do more of it. And if I said, here is the impact on me when you do that, especially if I want change-focused feedback, then I, I got better results. And I found that that was, for me, I was already pretty good at coaching people. But the feedback part, I really had to learn how to do that. And was that someone that you just figured out yourself or did you have someone help you? So I had sort of figured it out, some of it. And I had a terrific boss when I was passed over for a management position I really wanted. She got the job and she said to me, you're not quite ready for management, but it's my job to help you get ready for the management job that uh, you yeah, want. That's good. Oh, she was terrific. She was really great. And so in my one-on-ones with her, we had one-on-ones about my stuff, right? What did I have to do? What was your feedback to me? And then we would dissect the one-on-ones. It was it was Oh, really uh, yeah. Good. Interesting. Oh, yeah. She was coaching me and giving me feedback the entire – I think she was my boss for a little over a year. And she was terrific. I learned an enormous amount from from her about management. Yeah, it was great. So you were doing a one-on-one, and then afterwards you were almost dissecting the metadata about the one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's an interesting point, though. You're right. It's amazing what difference a good manager can make. Similar for myself, I had an excellent manager at one of my positions, and he basically said to me, and this was in regards to performance reviews, and I'm not too sure exactly what your thoughts on performance reviews are, but, but in essence what he said to me is, look, Kestrel, you should leave my organization a, a better employee than when you arrived, and that is my responsibility, as in the manager's responsibility. And that always stuck with me that if you can think of that as a manager, it's not just about getting output from your employees, but making them more skilled, more employable, um, and obviously helping their career, you're obviously going to get short-term benefits from that as well. Yeah, I what I always used to think of is how can I work myself out of this job? And so it's partially I have to grow and I have to supply opportunities for the people who work with me for them to grow. Now, not everyone wants to be a manager. Some people want to be senior or whatevers. Some people want to be principal whatevers. Some people want a lateral transition to something else. That's okay. It does not matter what they want. And sometimes people don't actually want to move. They have found a really good place for themselves in the organization. But So they don't have to move, but they can increase their skills every year. Yes. And and that's the part I thought was really incumbent upon me as a manager. Try and find out what you can do in that area. Right. 
Yeah, excellent. So is there any other uh, things you had to learn the hard way? Any other mistakes you sort of made in your early years of management? Oh, I'm sure I made a ton of them. Oh, oh, there's one that was just classic. One of the guys in my uh, continuing engineering group was the parent of a new child, right? I think the baby was two or three or four months old. And I had a new child. My baby was about five or six months old. So we had a lot in common. And he came in, and because he was on continuing engineering, we kind of had shifts, right, from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. and then from noon to 8 p.m. or something like that. We did not do 24-7 coverage, but we had a long day. And he was supposed to be there for the early part of the day. And he kept coming in at 9, 9.30, 10. And I said, you know, I don't know what to do because I need you to come in early. And he would say, well, the baby's crying. And he said, I'm really tired and I'm not, I'm really not able to work. And a classic thing I said was, leave your emotions at the door. I mean, how stupid is that? So <laughs> luckily, he was so much smarter than I was. And he said, you know, my emotions are a part of me. So which part would you like me to leave at the door? My left leg, my right arm. And I said, oh, Touché. yeah, yeah. Can we start this conversation over again? Because I'm kind of tired because my child has not been yeah. sleeping through the night. So we both laughed at me, and then we did some problem solving. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah, so that was, that was one of the most stupid things I think I've ever said. Yeah, you got to sort of balance people's emotions and your own emotions at the same time, don't you? That was probably more your emotions, wasn't it? Oh, it was totally about me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I had been grounded and thinking clearly, I, w I might have said, you know, I noticed that you're having trouble coming in for 7 a.m. Would you like to come in later and we can see maybe we just shorten our day, maybe we set expectations, maybe the other person can come in early for a few months while you get some sleep. I mean, you know, I was just being stupid. So, yeah, I have some real... I'm sure that that is not the only Boza remark I have ever had, but it's one of the biggest ones that I remember, and mostly because of his reaction. Right? He didn't get angry at me. He actually said, I'm a human being, and I thought, oh, yeah, so am I. It's good when your staff sort of uh, help you out, isn't it? Yes, it's really wonderful. So what, um, what do you think are the, is the fundamental goal of management? What's it all about? To create an environment in which everybody can be successful. So management creates the environment by how they reward people, how they help people discuss things, and how people treat each other. So if a manager yells and screams, the manager is saying, it's okay to yell and scream. If a manager says, we can denigrate people, it's okay for other people to denigrate people. And if a manager rewards heroics instead of teamwork, then people are only going to do heroics. So the manager can set the culture, at least for the team, and then the senior managers really create the culture for the organization. And you reinforce culture by how you hire and the feedback mm -hmm. that you give as you proceed. So... You've done a lot of consulting, obviously. What are some of the common mistakes you see people make making in regards to management? I still see a lot of control. You know, I, I find this so interesting. People are adult, right? We only employ adults. 
I have not seen any 14 or 15-year-old kids in my work as a consultant. I've seen 22-year-olds who might not have had the maturity that I like. I've seen interns who are not as mature as maybe we would like for full-time employees. But you can manage them a little differently if you need to. But I see 35-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50- and 60-year-olds where the managers estimate for them. These people own Mm -hmm. homes. They have marriages and children. In every other area of their lives, they are responsible human beings. Can we not ask them to be responsible at work? And responsible is not living up to somebody else's estimate of your work, right? That's not responsible. What's responsible is here is some work. How would you organize this? How would you estimate this? And please deliver it. And tell me if you're not going to be able to deliver it when you say that you will. You know, to ask people what you need from them, set their expectations and set your expectations. Ask for results, but don't ask for people to do this little thing and then report back to you. I mean, I just see this controlling thing all the time. Micromanaging, yeah. Yeah, and people don't people don't mean to micromanage, but they're nervous about the deliverable. They're not sure how they can get the results that they want. And instead of saying, here's how I'm going to check in with you or here's how I would like you to check in with me, they micromanage. It's totally unnecessary. Do you think technical people make good managers? I don't see why not. I mean, yep. they understand the risks in, in the technology. I have a ton of experience in project and program management. I am not the right person to manage a construction project because I don't understand the risks, right? Mm. And we've done a couple of remodels and essentially rebuilt an entire house. So I actually have some experience on the consumer side of a construction project, but I don't understand the issues nearly as well as I understand the issues in software. So for a software project, I can do a really good job as a project or program manager, even if I don't understand the domain, because I understand the risks of software development. But I'm a mechanical engineering project? Probably not. Yeah, yeah. You you know the concept of project manager, but not the domain. Right. I don't know the risks. So coming back to that sort of controlling micromanagement thing, do you think the fact that because possibly we have come from a technical background, that does tend to make us be more micromanagers? I think that the tendency is there because we have experience doing something like this in the past. But what's different is, so I, I talked about how I no longer write professional code, right? I'm, I'm not a mm. professional programmer anymore. Everything has changed, right? We have IDEs, never mind which IDE do you use now as opposed to 10 years ago. We didn't have IDEs when I was a programmer. The first time I compiled and built something, it was for a machine where that only had 1,024 bytes on a page. Now, and we had to we had to swap in pages and swap out pages. Thank God those bad old days are over. Can you imagine if I thought I was I could estimate for somebody else now? So I have an idea of what I think it might take people, 
but I don't know what it really takes here. And so what I see in too many managers is that they no longer have the direct experience of what it really takes to do something here. Yes, five years ago they did this thing, 10 years ago they did this thing, even two years ago they did this thing. And hopefully the environment has changed enough that their suspicion of what the estimate should be or what or what all the steps are is no longer valid, right? Their mm-hmm. suspicion, their knowledge is now suspect. And that's a, a very typical management myth. I'm similar myself as well. I haven't programmed for, for quite a while now. I still like to think I can do it, but you know. <laughs> yeah, you probably can. Yeah, yeah, but not to the to the level required. Where I'm working currently, the the technical side of things is is sort of outside my domain. I haven't done a huge amount there before, so I'm kind of finding that refreshing. So it forces you to rely on your team, you know. So that's kind of a, kind of a good thing. So you're you're quite heavily involved with Agile, or you have been in the past. I am, yeah. So with Agile and I guess the way, you know, self-directed teams and the way sort of software development is heading, do you think managers and management is still needed or is it more of a hindrance or what's your thoughts on that? So some management is needed and more management needs to be, what we think of as management, needs to be installed in in the team members themselves. So managers need to create the strategy. They need to manage the project portfolio, which projects to do first, second, third, and never. They need to be able to provide feedback, coaching, and meta-feedback and meta-coaching. What they don't need to do is provide performance reviews. One of the things, I've been a consultant now for over 20 years. My clients don't give me performance reviews. I know I've done a good job. I know when I have not done a good job. And I Did you get asked back? I Yeah, I get asked back. Or they say, we don't quite have money for you now, but we want to be able to call on you later. Or I get, I have feedback forms for some of my workshops. Some of them, you know, feedback forms are kind of useless in a, in a number of dimensions. But for what people write down as opposed to the ranking that they give me, I find that that feedback is really helpful. So what people need is feedback all the time. Right. Mm. They need feedback from their peers. They do not need a manager sitting down once a year saying, you're a three or you're a one or you're a five or, I mean, whatever that stupid rating system is. So, because I always thought that I was above average. And if everyone else is above average, what's average? And how does that have any bearing on what you, what you have accomplished and what you're going to do? So, This whole business of management by objectives, when the objectives change every week, if not every month, right? I've been in in situations where I was supposed to have goals, and those goals were supposed to be about projects, and the projects we finished at the end of the year had nothing to do with the projects I had goals for, because we totally Mm -hmm. changed what we did. So that stuff is useless. But people need feedback, and people need to understand how to provide feedback. So you can either help them learn how to provide feedback. You can model the providing meta-feedback. You can model providing coaching and meta-coaching. Right? You can do what my boss did with me, which she said, here are the skills you need to have. Now let's talk about the skills that you learned this week. 
and then we would dissect the one-on-one so I could learn how to do one-on-ones. So she provided me coaching and feedback and meta-coaching and meta-feedback. That was a terrific way to do management. And that's the part that I, you know, if you cannot trust the people who work for you to do their jobs, you're not being the kind of a manager that they need, right? So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so management is about helping the people do their jobs and, and especially in Agile, giving each other feedback, giving each other coaching and coming to you and saying, you know, we need another person on the team or we don't have this kind of a resource or we need this kind of training. That's what you can help with. So we need fewer managers, but we don't need fewer leaders. I like what you're saying there, the performance review stuff constant feedback you know it's kind of useless giving feedback once a year isn't it oh yeah yeah for example if someone's doing a poor job why wait for the performance review so they've got no chance to rectify things yeah i i have a funny story about that back in the late 70s i was working for a small company and i finally got a performance review my boss said you do 95% or 96% of the job, but you don't take it that last little bit to really finish it off. I said, oh, which project is that? And he said, the one you finished six months ago. And I thought, you waited six months to tell me? I thought this was about the project I was on. He said, well, no, you have a tendency. And then he said, and it's this project and this project, because we had really small projects. These three projects. And I said, you know, I could have been perfect if you had just told me this six months ago. And he said, oh. Yeah, that's it, isn't yeah. it? So I and said, that's the manager's yeah, I said, role to do that. Don't wait. Don't wait to tell me I'm not doing something right. Tell me I'm not doing something right. I'll fix it. I want to be perfect. I know I can't be perfect, but I can be better. So don't wait for this. And it was actually a huge learning experience for me because now I have a checklist at the end of every project of everything I have to do because I hate finishing. I mean, this is a part of, you know, I'm intellectually, it's, it's finished. That doesn't mean it's really done. And I suspect that I'm not the only one out there who has this problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, too, what you're saying about, you know, average and above average. I know I've worked at places before where we've actually scored people low. Otherwise, we've got nowhere to score them for next year. You know, if we start them yeah. if we start them as medium now, well, next year, high is the highest I can go, and you can't ever really go to high. <laughs> right, and why not? It's kind of right? funny. I mean... I have highest standards of excellence for my work. I mean, books are like software. They're never really done. But at some point, you ship them, and they're done enough for now. And I have really high standards for my books, but that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to take feedback or want feedback. And I do, but at some point, it has to be done. And it's the same thing with people. And if we – I don't see how you can rank – individuals against each other, right? My books are mine. They're not anybody else's. You can say, oh, I can hear Johanna's voice evolving through her books. That's great. But that just means I'm getting better. And so if you try and rank me against another author, I don't understand what that – nobody else has written exactly the same books I have. And in work, nobody else does exactly the same work that you do. So how can you rank people against each other? And if you're talking about where do we put them in the money ranges, 
Now we're talking about, you know, an extra $1,000 here or 500 bucks here. I mean, it's just so stupid. We're quibbling about minute amount of money all for the sake of ranking people. Oh, don't get – well, you got me started. Sorry. No, it's so, it's so true. It's even in the areas of, you know, success. You compare yourself to someone else and, well, I'm doing better than those people because, you know, I feel – I'm doing better than them, but then when I compare myself to other people, I'm not as doing as good. But you're right, it's more, what's my potential? Do I think I have more potential? Well, if I do, well, then I can be doing more. And the same as other people, you know, you've got a junior programmer and you're comparing them to someone who's maybe passionate about it and he lives and breathes it. Well, that's not really fair, is it? But what's, what could be, what's, what's the next level we can take each person to? That's the potential that they can reach. Right, and I think it's really important to build on our strength, right, to manage our weaknesses and build on our strengths because we we can try and build on our weaknesses right to make them not weaknesses but I would rather say you know I get to the point I get to 90% done and then I really hate finishing so what do I need to do so I can actually finish and get on to the next thing and so I have I have I manage that particular weakness I'm never going to be the kind of person who says, I love all the details and finishing. I hate it. I just hate Mm. it. But I have a way to manage it. So I think that that's really the key. Let's build on our our capabilities, on our strengths. And if, if someone wants a new skill, wants a new capability, that's terrific. I, if I'm a manager, I can help that person, right? We can explore, we can try, we can do any number of things. And with guided feedback, with guided coaching, that might be a really pot, a really terrific possibility. But don't try and make somebody someone that they are not. That just mm. doesn't, it doesn't work. So I'd like to talk about your uh, book, Behind Closed Doors, now, because it did have such a, an impact on me. What were you hoping to achieve when you, uh, when you wrote that book? So when Esther and I wrote that book, we decided we would show great management because too many people have seen really terrible management. And if we have a practically perfect manager, and Sam is the practically perfect manager, then people can see what you might do in a situation. And then if we break it down to show the tools, right, the interpersonal skill tools that he was using, then people can say, I see how to use this myself. So we really wanted to show how great management happens. And it happens in the conversations. And almost all of those conversations are private conversations. So that's where the behind closed doors comes from. Yeah, that's good. So one of the concepts that you you mentioned in the book was management by walking around and listening. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So it's it's very easy for managers to get tied up in their offices, writing reports, investigating data, talking to customers, doing uh, any number of things, or even worse, running from meeting to meeting to meeting, right? So you're, you're never with the people who do the work that your department is responsible for or your team is responsible for. So if you can take some time and wander around, not necessarily interrupt, but wander around and listen, you can see things that you would not see in a meeting. So you, you can see, is there data on the information radiators or is the data old? Right? The, mm-hmm. You might not be a scrum master, you might not be a coach, but if you don't see up-to-date data on information radiators, 
I suspect that there is something going on with the team. What do you mean by information radiators? So you might have a, a scrum board or a Kanban board, and I happen to like making a velocity chart, a burn-up chart, right next to the board. I also am really into Kanban, so I really like looking at the whip. So I, oh, that's work in progress. So I want to see where is the whip. And if you don't see a board change from day to day, that says the team is not keeping up the board. Why are they not keeping up the board? Are you asking them to do this electronically and on paper? Don't do that, right? Mm. But if they are working just on paper on a board, why are they not updating the board? So I might go and try and see if they're when they have their stand-up and just listen at a stand-up. Now, I don't normally listen at stand-ups for teams that I'm not a part of, but I might go do that just to get data. One of the things I, I often like to look at is what happens in a planning session. Are people actually discussing what's going on, what they have to do? Does one person estimate for everybody? Do people assign tasks to people and or assign stories to people? This is all behavior that is not particularly good in an, in an Agile team. So what mm -hmm. do we need to do to understand what the data is? Right, does this happen all the time? Does it happen only once every so often? Where is the data, and then how can I use the data to help the team get better or help people excuse me, mm. people on the team get better? Do you think the manager should be close to where the team's located, uh, or do you think that might in inhibit team dynamics, or should the manager have their own office, or what's your thoughts on that? So I like it when managers are close to the teams that they work with. Because if the manager, if the team has impediments that they cannot remove, the manager is the first place I would hope that they would bring the impediments. So I like managers near the teams. I also like managers to have an office with a door. Because if you don't have a way to have a private conversation, there will be all kinds of things that happen that nobody will talk to you about. Because people never they will never say, I'm having a crisis in my home life. I'm having, right, my wife is having a crisis in her health. They will never do this in public. They might admit mm. to it later in public, but they will, if you need to help as a manager, you need to have a private conversation. And if you need to give very difficult feedback to somebody, so I once had a guy work for me who was clearly in the middle of a nervous breakdown. It was a very, very sad thing. And he stopped coming to work. And when he did come to work, he didn't do anything. I had many, many private conversations with him. And I, I could not have done the, I could not have had those conversations with him if I did not have a private office. I've had people work with me who were alcoholics. And right, it was not water in their coffee cup. It was vodka because vodka does not have an odor. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. if you don't have a private conversation with these people and say, I noticed that your your work has changed over the last few months, that here's what I saw in January, and now here's what I saw in April, and now it's May, and I keep seeing this decline. Is there something going on? People will, I mean, you cannot have that conversation mm. in public, and a team mm. might not be able to have that conversation. Yeah, I like the way you phrased that, very non-confrontational. Instead of just coming straight out and saying what you think is the problem, 
seek for them to, 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 to bring it up. It's very easy for me to make judgments about what the problem is. And my judgments are clouded by my life and my mental models and my filters. So why don't I give that person a chance to tell me what the problem really is? Because I don't know what the problem is. And maybe they don't know what the problem is. And maybe it is water in their coffee cup. That's right. You could be wrong. I could be totally wrong. So if if someone new uh, is about to take on their first management or team leader position, what would be some of your suggestions for them, you know, two or three suggestions? Have one-on-ones with the people on your team. Get mm-hmm. to know them as individuals. Get to know what they want. Um, help them achieve their career goals, whatever their career goals are. So, but And in an Agile team, you probably only want to have a one-on-one every other week. You don't need a one-on-one every week. But you need to have that personal connection. Um, I believe it's Buckingham and Coffin and First Break All the Rules who said people who have a great connection with their boss are much more likely to stay at that particular company. Yeah, right? you build loyalty, don't you? You build loyalty, and and you learn you learn about the people. So do that. Understand the risks that your team has. So that might be looking at the risks of software development, looking at the risks of not having enough resources, and I do not mean people. I mean desks and lab and infrastructure and money and books and training, right? Mm -hmm. See what their impediments are and remove their impediments. And the third thing is understand what kind of a manager you need to be. So read books like Behind Closed Doors. Uh, Read about project management. Read about project portfolio management. Where do the requests come in to your team? Are those requests managed in any kind of a way, right? Are people multitasking? Because multitasking is the fastest way to get nothing done. So how can you help your team? How can you create an environment for your team so that they can succeed? And then it's all the coaching and the feedback and helping people understand how they can be more productive. And not because you want to get blood out of a stone, but because people really like producing, right? So if you make it possible for them to produce, they will be happier. Yeah, I love that aspect of management is not about us trying to, you know, direct what they're doing, but really it's trying to give them the best environment they can to to produce and kind of get out of the way, really. Yeah, yeah. That's really good. Okay, so uh, we're pretty much uh, wrapping up towards the end of our uh, our show here. Is there anything uh, I haven't asked but should have? Um, I don't think so. I think at this point it's it's really what people need themselves as opposed to, you know, what problems do you have? How can you solve them? I've written about a lot of these issues on on my website on jrothman.com and on my blog, uh, Managing Product Development. So, you know, think about what you need as a manager and then say, how can I find the information to help me get over this particular issue now? That's really good. So uh, what, what do you do when you're, uh, when you're not deep in software development land? Any hobbies or things that you get into? I, I think I'm going to experiment with writing fiction now because uh, ah. I've been writing a lot of nonfiction. And as soon as I finish the program management book, which is fall of 2015, I'm not sure when fall is yet. I have 
more client work than I expected, so I'm a little bit mm-hmm. behind on the writing. But that's my goal. I think I will try try and start writing some fiction, and then we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Any type of genre? Or? So I'm I'm a huge romantic suspense reader and science fiction and fantasy. I I suspect that science fiction and fantasy you would go yes. with, and the romantic suspense you might not be so interested in. <laughs> no, my wife might be into that. At least okay. the romantic part, anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, excellent. All right. So where can uh, where can we go to? Where can the listeners go to to find out more about you, Johanna? So everything is on jrothman.com, J-R-O-T-H-M-A-N.com. So my books are there. The blogs are there. Everything is there. And if they have questions, they can do a little search. And if I haven't answered that particular question, they should send me an email, and I'll write a blog post or an article about it. Great. And I'll have some uh, some uh, details in the show notes for people that can get the links for your website and extra information. And uh, if you're listening and you've not read Behind Closed Doors before and you're new to management or looking at getting into it, I would definitely recommend you uh, get out there and get that book off Amazon. All right, Johanna, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Yeah, it's been excellent. I'll, I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed listening to this show as much as I did recording it. Personally, it was a real honor to interview Johanna as her book had a huge impact on me early in my management career. For the show notes, head over to www.managingsmartly.com forward slash one. Now that's the number one. And you can get all the show notes there. If you're listening to this in early 2016, you'll also find details of the contest I'm running to coincide with the launch of the podcast. Until next time, remember to manage smartly. Thanks for listening to the Managing Smartly podcast, where we're all about helping software developers become managers. Check us out at www.managingsmartly.com.